what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you for listening. I'm sitting here with my friend, Rolf Kramer. He's the director of business development at Tectonic. He was a competitive mogul skier and the developer of the program, The Art of Being Found on Udemy, which uh, we'll dive into that. And with that, uh, Rolf, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Matt. Happy to happy to be here. Yeah, it's been a long time coming, so thanks for your flexibility. No on problem. Getting this no scheduled. Problem. <laughs> well, even before I hit record, we were talking about like our philosophy on sales and being salespeople, and how we don't like to talk as salespeople. So <laughs> right. we, were, we were laughing that this could be like an hour of just silence of us looking at each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. What would you like to start with first? Like, obviously, I thought the the mogul skiing was fascinating to me as a skier, but um, like seeing and understanding more about the art of being found. This this is your time, and so which one of those two would you like to start with? You know, I think that actually the skiing's been the foundation even for my career. You know, I grew up here in Littleton, Colorado, and I was raised by a fanatic skier, single mom who loved to ski. Really, and even as a kid. Um, we skied all the time, and in high school, I could even get excused absences to go skiing, which was awesome, like mom of the year stuff, right? <laughs> uh, so, you know, I've, I've developed a passion for it. I went to Fort Lewis College in Durango and started competing in, in amateur mogul contests around the Southwest, Telluride, Purgatory, Taos, stuff like that. And when I graduated from college, my mom was living in Vail at the time, of course, and I um, she asked, you know, if I wanted to move there. Of course, I said yes. And uh, I started competing on the World Pro Mogul Tour. And it wow. was just really fun. I had some friends that um, like were sponsored by Power Bar and they had a van. And um, I worked at the hospital at the time in, in admissions at the orthopedic clinic. And uh, they sponsored me, which was always a joke on tour, right? I was sponsored by an orthopedic clinic. <laughs> but um, Creating a sales funnel. <laughs> and, you know, in full transparency, you know, I was good enough to be on the tour. I, I wasn't lighting up the podium or anything like that. But it was the most incredible experience just to be able to, you know, right after college, travel around the state, even sometimes in other states, competing in contests with friends. And, um, you know, I just always loved skiing. So it was just a great way to, um, to just be involved with skiing and be part of a community. Uh, so what year was it? Cause I'm trying to get my head around what the equipment looked like. Uh, 89 to 92 was so these my are long straight skis, very skinny. Okay. Yep. 190 ish was okay. kind of the, the, the length at the time. Um, you know, some people look down on that if you had less than two Oh fours or something, but you know, in mogul skiing, there was at the time there was no shovels on the course, right? So we had two mandatory airs, uh, single elimination, dual format. So dual moguls, if you lost, you're out. Okay. And you had to get two airs on course that were that were taken off natural features. So that also meant you landed in the bumps. Whereas you look at <laughs> mogul contests today, the jumps are sculpted perfectly, the landings are chopped. Um, so it was a very different experience um, at the time, but it was it was super fun. 
my knees are okay. My back hurts a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking of uh, Glenn Plake and all the Warren Miller videos where he's got those. Long skis. Yeah. Like Elon's or Olin's. Sure. And he's like two tens and they're yes. race skis and he's in the moguls. Yeah. It's crazy. It was hard, but you know, it, you know, things have evolved. Obviously snowboarders have kind of changed the way bumps are shaped. Um, fat skis have changed it. So, most of the mogul contests you see today are, you know, th- those bumps are, you know, I'm using air quotes, manufactured uh, yeah. by the people that hold the contest. So it's a different sport than it is today. But, um, you know, I met my wife living in Vail and, and we moved to Salt Lake shortly thereafter. And, I, you know, I got into staffing because of skiing because I met someone at Snowbird who had started a staffing company and sold it and was just there skiing. Okay. And, uh, you know, we got to talking and he started a company and I was employee number two for him. So, so, so on the, uh, the moguls, what, so what year did you start skiing? I'm obviously very young, right? Yeah. 1968. Okay. This and is then, my 51st ski, ski season. Okay. We're the yeah. same age. I was born yeah. in 68. So uh, I was born in 66. Okay. So I, you I, were two. I was two. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, what led you to moguls? Was it? Well, at the time, you know, outside of ski racing, where, you know, you're on a course racing against the clock or other people against the clock, it was kind of the pinnacle of the sport, right? Because there was, there wasn't really this, there were people ski mountaineering, but it wasn't really what it is today, like big mountain skiing. Um, You know, there was no park or pipe or terrain parks or anything like that. So you were either a ski racer, if you wanted to compete, um, you were either a ski racer or a mogul skier. There was freestyle aerials and it was kind of the end of the ballet era too. But I just thought, you know, I, I was, I just had a, I had a knack for it. Hmm. Um, so had a little, I did some diving in high school. So I had a little bit of kinesthetic sense and felt like, you know, I was, I had some good tricks for that, that day and age. And, um, you know, to be the best at it, you had to train year round and, and, you know, as soon as ski season ended, I was off rock climbing and riding my mountain bike and going down rivers or doing something like that. And then when the ski season started, I started skiing moguls again. So that kind of kept me out of the top 20 all the time. But I, <laughs> it didn't it didn't uh, deter from the smile on my face. I was having fun. What was your signature move or what, what was your scope of tricks? I could do a Daffy Twister spread pretty okay. easily and I could do, you know, helicopters which you know people call them threes now or 360s but very different looking than today's you know pencil my son calls them pencil helis because <laughs> my legs are straight my skis aren't crossed you know my body is straight up and down um i haven't done one for a few years <laughs> um, it's a thing of beauty when i see somebody when i ski going down the moguls and even with any degree of mastery, just getting the cadence and flowing through there. And I've taken lessons. I suck at moguls. Like I, I'll They're go hard. off anything. Like I ski at Wolf Creek a lot. Sure. And if it's, and that is like a deceptive place to ski for me because I feel like a rock star there and I'll get down something. It's going to be ugly, but I'll make it down. But I'm making my own line through powder. But I go to Summit County and I try to ski those moguls like somebody else's line. And I'll get like two or three and I detonate. So Blow watching, out of it. Yeah. So that's watching so somebody funny. that's got some mastery of moguls is just a form of art. 
Yeah, and I, you know, like it's it's hard to. I don't ski them very much anymore. When, um, when I when we moved to Salt Lake City, you know, I thought I was a hot shot, right? And then I started skiing snowbird, big mountain, steep terrain skiing, and I was like, whoa, this is a whole different thing. So I now I have more of a penchant for steep terrain skiing. I like like Silverton, A Basin, the hiking at Breckenridge when it's open. Big mountains like Snowbird and Whistler and stuff like that. That's my favorite kind of skiing. Moguls are, they're just too painful when you get older. Sure. Yeah. Do you have any tips for somebody? Like I'm asking personally, any tips for getting better at moguls? You know, it's it's hard. I think it's um, I think the biggest mistake people make is don't keep like keeping the contact of your skis throughout the whole thing. Okay. And not skiing the troughs, but maybe a quarter of the way up. Oh. So you're kind of moving from trough to trough, not down in it, but more up a little bit on it. But the, again, the problem is if you look at mogul lines today, if you're looking at it like going up a lift, they're all slanted towards yeah. a heel side snowboarder because snowboarders have a hard time going straight down the fall line. And most of them are most comfortable on their heel side rather than toe. Okay. <clears throat> and most of them... Um, ride with their left foot forward so you can just look at mogul lines they're not like they used to be where they went straight down the fall line in a continuous line so i think they're harder today than they were in the past that makes a ton of sense because i've always felt a little bit off camber to use a a bike term and kind of feeling it was like i should be turning this way or leaning that way yeah they kind of they kind of roll at an angle and they have these kind of uh they have these peaks on them. Um, they're different. If you look at next time you see a mogul field, I think you'll understand what I'm talking about if you look at it with that new lens. Okay. So I had some friends that worked for uh, Ski Utah, and I've skied uh, Snow Basin a couple of times. Nice. Uh, my friend Chris, his front window looks at the backside of Snow Basin. Very nice. So if I was ever going to be a ski bum, I'd do it in Utah. Just yes. Just because of the, the proximity to the, the mountain. That's right. I loved it. We lived 15 miles from the Alta parking lot. Yeah. Um, it only, you know, we could wake up at eight o'clock and make first chair. Um, this is 92 to 99. It's changed a little since the Olympics went through and there's obviously more people there and everything, but it was a great place to live and it was a great home base. And our first year there, Alta got like 760 inches. Um, I was, I was sold. It's really fun powder skiing and it's steep. Yeah. Do you think the snow is different out there? I know that's their market. Unquestionably. Yeah. Why yeah. do you think that is? Here's the difference. When you ski powder in Colorado, it makes a track. When you ski okay. powder in Utah, it just fluffs out of the way. Really? There isn't a track. It's just fluffed out of the way. And that's, you know, not all storms are created equal. But what happens is you get these cold storms that come over the desert and they build up and then they go over that gigantic salt lake. And because of its composition, um, it's salt. And the way that Little Cottonwood Canyon and Big Cottonwood, for that matter, are shaped, if you look at it from above, you can just see how it goes over the lake, gets stuck in those canyons, and just dumps. And the quality of the snow is, it's like smoke. It's, it's ama- it, there's nothing like it. Wow. If you ever get a big powder day at Snowbird in Alta, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's, there's nothing like it. It's, it's incredible. There, it's not just marketing okay. fluff, no pun intended. <laughs> that's cool (laughs) so was there was there less and i people that um have 
achieve some level of mastery and especially something that I am striving to. What did, what did ski racing, I'm not racing, what did the mogul competitions teach you that's carried over in terms of, you know, I'll let you answer the question. Yeah. You know, it's, I think, um, I think just trying to be good at something and, and, um, doing it in a, in an excellent way. Um, again, I never really took it as I had to win or I had to be the best. Um, but I wanted to do the best I could. And, uh, I think that's always translated into my career. You know, it was more about me, not me beating the other person necessarily. And maybe that's why I never was, you know, top 10. I, you know, they paid out money. I think only won like $2,000 the whole time I competed where like the winner was winning $60,000 a year, you know, it was a pretty decent living at that time. And you got to ski moguls all the time with your friends. But, um, I think more than anything, it's just like doing something excellent and focusing on it and spending time doing something you love. I mean, um, uh, it's, uh, it's just a great, it's so great to be skiing gets more fun, the better you get at it for sure. I would totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. It does. How long did it take you to master a trick to the point where you would take it into competition? Um, you know, you just keep trying them. We, you know, we skied a lot. We were skiing a hundred days a year that, that those days in Vail and stuff. And you just tried them. And if you felt like you can do it, you did it, you know, um, in the contest, um, I wasn't like super calculated about it. Okay. Um, just sometimes it, it felt right to do it that way. And it depended on the course, you know, if it was, if it was super hard and it hadn't snowed in a few weeks or whatever, you know, you kind of approach that differently than a really soft course. But again, once you get 125 guys and, and gals for that matter, um, going through the course like three times for practice and then the runs, those bumps get ginormous. <laughs> they really do, you know, even no matter how much it snowed the night before. But the landings tend to be a little softer. So Nice. Yeah. So you mentioned getting to Utah and starting your staffing career. Mm-hmm. What did, how did that all materialize? You know, if, if you've ever skied Snowbird, the tram line is a serpentine line. And if you ski all the time, you'd run into the same people over and over. And at the time I was selling computer training for a company called New Horizons Computer Learning Center. So I had a network in the market and he knew that, this gentleman. And, um, you know, we just ended up talking once you get in the tram, you just talk to people, but you see, you know, when you see him, you just start talking to people. And he said, Hey, you know, I built this business in Boston. I sold it. I'm my non-competes running out. I'm thinking about starting that same business out here in Utah. Would you want to get together for lunch and talk about, you know, I'll tell you what it is. And you tell me if you think there's a market for it in Utah. And we spoke and I didn't join him right away. Um, he started the company and then I joined him like six months later as employee number two. And I, and, and I would argue that his group invented it staffing in the mid seventies in Boston, built up this practice. They were, uh, they were getting hiring managers to hire contractors rather than full-time employees for a fee. And, uh, that can be very lucrative because you're getting paid for every hour that they work. They had 30 offices. They sold to, um, a company out of the Netherlands. And now it's Ronset Technologies, that company that he sold. And that's the fourth largest IT staffing company in the world right now. So it really burgeoned. But anyway, that's beside the point. It just, um, you know, I started working with him in uh, 1997 and uh, worked for 18 months in the Salt Lake market. And then his non-compete ran out in other markets. 
I grew up here. He said, do you want to go open an office in Denver? And I moved my family back out to Colorado in March of 99. Nice. Yeah. So I ran a branch for him out here for eight years. Okay. Yeah. Cool. It's great. And then uh, <clears throat> we talked a little bit about the uh, the art of being found too. And I just, as you, like I said, I was patrolling your LinkedIn <laughs> and seeing just person after person just raving about that. And then what was the origin of that? Well, I started my own staffing company in 2012 and um, I was meeting with a group of IT executives here in Denver. Uh, they have a group called Ditex and uh, th- those are IT executives in transition which is a euphemism for being unemployed. And um, I was exploring other exploring opportunities. Out, uh, yeah, they're, they're actually unemployed looking, right? Yeah. And um, I knew from years and years and years of IT staffing that there were thousands of jobs for technicians and developers and engineers and not enough candidates. Contrastly, there was a few jobs in IT leadership and hundreds of candidates. So I started asking these executives, what was their strategy for looking for work? How are they doing it? And they talked a lot about networking, which is the right thing to do in that situation and looking online and things of that nature. And I just thought it was uncanny based on my experience, knowing that recruiters spend most of their day searching for candidates and that my company would never post an IT leadership job because we would get hundreds of resumes and that's eye glazing that none of the executives talked about being good at being found. And I had kind of an aha moment. I was like, I think I can help these people if I develop a program and and taught them to consider recruiters in their job search. And, you know, if a recruiter has your dream job on their desk and they do a search in LinkedIn to try to fill it, does your name come up? Mm -hmm. And when's the last time you Googled something and went to the fifth page? And the fact of the matter is, is that the average age of a recruiter these days is 25 to 35 years old. And they are digital natives pretty much. And they do everything digitally and they are searching for candidates. And, you know, there's no emotion in the data of your name coming up. Right. It does or it doesn't. So I've been over the last eight years now. uh, Yeah, eight years. uh, I've developed a program. I put it on Udemy, which is an online training platform just to try to help more people because I can only affect a group of like 12 when I give a seminar. But it's really become my philanthropic work because even though there's low unemployment, there's a group of people that struggle to find work. And most of it is because they don't know how to do it today. I mean, if you've worked at a job for 20 years and you get laid off or you find yourself looking, you don't go to the Rocky Mountain News and look in the classifieds. It's different, right? There's a lot of different ways and and people are vetting you through your social media site. That's how they're finding cultural fit. You got to have a personal brand. You got to come up in search. You got to show that you're passionate about your profession by being having an online presence. So those are the types of things that I teach and it's been super gratifying. I've had, um, I was telling you earlier about 80 people tell me that they found their job because of what I taught them. And, um, that to me means everything because a job means a lot to somebody. And if I can help them find one, it's paid me back. You know, I've helped executives find jobs. Now they use me as a vendor, right? So I don't do it because of that, but it's turned into that. And I, I think people would, um, be able to sniff that out. Like if you were doing it solely for that reason that people know if people are being genuine. 
They do. And, you know, you do it to be altruistic or philanthropic and it's going to come back. It's just, you know, people will respond to the genuineness of the gesture. I think so. And, you know, sometimes I have to hold up the mirror, you know, um, there, you know, especially in our older population, um, they almost get upset that a 25 year old recruiter would check their Facebook page. Um, and it's, it does seem not fair, but if you think about it, if, if you look at it from 30,000 feet, so just imagine, for example, I'm a recruiter, I go to LinkedIn, I do a search, I come up with 12 candidates. So of those 12 candidates, the next thing I do is just go to Facebook to do a cursory check to see if they're angry, if they're getting in fight, you know, are they face down in a pile of red solo cups every weekend? <laughs> you know, like what is their story, right? Or are they a normal adult in America? So I have these 12 people, but let's say I can only find 10. So I found a little bit of something about 10 people, but I just can't find the other two. If you think about that just psychologically, what happens to those other two people? They might have been perfect for that job. They are out because that recruiter doesn't know anything about them. Their job's on the line. Even if they're a corporate recruiter, the hiring manager wants to, you know, they have to please the hiring manager. And if they're a contingent recruiter, they get paid if they place the right person. So if they don't know anything about you, you're risky. So I just try to teach people to, you know, even if you're anti-Facebook or anti-social media, they... I read an article in Inc. Magazine about six month, months ago, and it said, if you are a job seeker, personal branding is non-negotiable. It's a must do. Because 67% of recruiters are going to screen you in or screen you out based on what they see on social media. Why not play that game to win? It's free. It costs you a little time. Yeah. That's it. Well, to, to back up your point, um, one of my favorite books is, I think it's it's by Ryan Holiday, and it's either The Obstacle is the Way, and I think that's the one, or The Ego is the Enemy. But he talks about George Clooney when he was trying to crack into Hollywood, and he kept getting rejected, rejected, rejected. And he understood, finally, that the casting process sucks for everybody. So getting hired as an actor. Right. And he looked at it through the lens of the casting director and the producer and all that. And he goes, look, these are the things I'm going to do to make it easier for you. And just looked at it from that perspective, which is completely your point about, you know, the art of being found. And yeah, you might not like it, but this is what they've got to do. Like they have a job too. How can I make your job easier? It's a really good point. And, um, Jeff Bezos from Amazon is famous for having an empty seat in all their important meetings. Mm -hmm. And the empty seat represents the customer. Like what would the customer think about this decision that we're making? So what I try to impart on job seekers is that empty seat represents the recruiter. Right. What would a recruiter think about this? Because here you have, again, a 25 to 35 year old person kind of making that first decision about whether you're a fit for the company. And you might be a very very uh, schooled engineer or something like that. And this recruiter doesn't know anything about what you know, but they're responsible for vetting you out. So always consider what the recruiter would think of everything that you do, and it'll really help with your job search. It does. Yeah, and it's it's a game. And you know, to call it that might um, have maybe a negative connotation, but there's a process to whether you're 
selling somebody or dating somebody or getting hired and there's rules to the game and it's true you know <laughs> yeah. might as well play to win right yeah completely yeah especially completely. if it's your job yeah 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 um so like on on udemy so i've looked at uh, just a couple different things so i'll post a link to that on the site but yeah i love that that's something that you've done <coughs> you know for the to help people out It'll yeah, I, I love it. I love doing it and it's been great and uh, it's helped expand my network and um, it was tough to film it. Honestly, we only had one day and uh, I was out in L.A. I have a friend in the movie business and he has all the cameras and everything and we just did it in one day. I think I think we're going to try to maybe do it again um, just because it's hard to get it exactly right in just, uh, you know, that many hours, but it, it's still good co content. I've had like 50 or 60 students and it's all been good reviews. And, um, I wish I could just help more people. I really do. I wish I could reach more people. I thought that was a good way to do it. Um, but you know, uh, the more people you help, the more good things come your way. So that, that's my marching orders for that. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and that's, like this podcast, for example, it started as like a distraction and I just enjoyed the conversations, but I'm understanding after doing it for a couple of years that there is a, I even hesitate to use the word personal brand, right? But it does open some doors and like two of the, the food vendors that um, I met at the CTA event last night, mm -hmm. I was like, this is amazing. Like people should, it was the, uh, the vegan one and then the sushi one. I don't know if you had, yeah, I had the sushi one for sure. Uh, yeah. I had the vegan one too. We were, yeah. we were there. It was great. Yeah. And I was like, if I could get five people to listen to this and usually these are listened to by a little bit more, but like, I would love to just unpack that story and help them out. And it's not really about anything else other than telling their story. And I've come to realize that there's a business component to this, but also like if I can get somebody out there and help them out, then that's really what I enjoy doing. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good stuff. Thanks. Um, I had the pleasure of uh, meeting one of your mentees. I have to work on saying that word, not manatee, right? Like, which is, it's a lot of pet whales. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, she was great. And I love that you have like the one to many on the Udemy, but you know, what does it mean to be a mentor and how did you start doing that? Well, again, yeah. it just seems like I gravitate towards helping people. I think I get the most joy out of mm -hmm. that in my life, helping people. And, um, I just ran into a situation at Tectonic where I work that we hired this amazing woman who, uh, had everything intrinsic uh, that a good salesperson has. She had purpose and drive and work ethic, but never any training. She'd been a stay-at-home mom for 13 years. Oh, wow. Was out of the workforce for that long and, and wanted to get back to work and contribute. Um, and, and so Tectonic gave her a chance, but at the time there wasn't really a mechanism for her to get training. And so, um, you know, one thing led to another. And, and what we decided at Tectonic was... And by the way, Tectonic has an amazing software development apprentice program. So in, an, in, in essence, what we've done is created a sales apprentice program. And Anne is, you know, the first person uh, to be in that program. And, and uh, it's just so she's very coachable. Um, she, 
And it's just been so great to watch her develop, right? Because as you know, Matt, it takes so much has been written about sales. There's so many sales trainings. Um, you know, if you go back to old school selling techniques, everyone's heard, you know, always be closing. That isn't how it works anymore. It's all about relationships. And yeah. we were talking a little bit earlier about Dan Pink's book, To Sell as Human. And one of his points is, is that back in the day, there was information asymmetry, where most of the time the salesperson knew more than the prospect. And I think that's where you know, being slimy and shady and all that came about because it seemed like the salesperson was manipulating the situation. But if we look at it honestly today, there's more information symmetry. And in fact, sometimes the prospect knows more than the salesperson does because they have all this information at their fingertips. So just communicating with prospects, just helping people make decisions, moving people, um, is 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 new it's a new way of doing it. it's not intuitive and um i just love helping other people and uh again it you know we've set up a situation where it's um you know it, it's good for me monetarily and it's good for ann because she has someone uh to partner up with and 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 learn and it's working really great it really is good yeah in fact uh we're looking for another mentee. So if there's any junior salespeople out there that want to come work in technology um, at Tectonic, we'd be we'd love to talk to you about uh, coming into the program. I will definitely post that as well. I was I was pushing in a little bit because we were talking about the, the podcast last night and I said this really started as just people like over beers and I heard one little snippet of a story kind of like your uh, mogul skiing. I was like let's just talk about that. And so I was trying to convince Anne that I don't know what her story is, but like there's something there that I think would be interesting. No question. <laughs> so yeah, your homework is to get her. No, I think be. she would. I And I, <laughs> one of the things I'm coaching her not to do is talk so much about herself. So she would love this. <laughs> so I could just push record you, yeah, and leave. Just push record and leave and she'll go on and on. Um, maybe, you know, maybe she's learned enough now that she would sit here in silence like we did, like we would. But, uh, anyway, so, um, you know, she, she has a great story and, um, I, I, I think she would be a great guest because, uh, she inspires me. She really does. That's great to hear. Yeah. I've worked as hard, if not harder to become a sales professional than I think I did to become an engineer. So I was a software engineer for 10 years. And so had like, a, um, I have a double ET degree, a lot of computer science, and then even a math minor, which mm. I couldn't do a differential equation now for a million dollars. <laughs> like I wouldn't even recognize it. Just but, Google it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but um, I still remember that the first month I was at uh, Valley Lab up in Boulder, mm -hmm. I was gravitating towards the sales marketing teams and one guy um, had said, you should just come work for me. And I didn't even know what that would look like. And I ultimately didn't do it. I was like, I went to school for an engineer and I did that. And if there was, if he had said, and I think I would have gotten that apprenticeship or that mentorship from him. Mm -hmm. But I think back that if, you know, obviously he had seen the, the sales potential. I had no skills in it. But I just wonder how different things would have been if, you know, right out of college, I was like, yeah, why not? But 
there were so many other factors there. It's not of him. Course. It was like my confidence and my skill set. And but to have that as a potential, it's amazing because I've seen a lot of salespeople get set up for failure because it's like, here's the phone book, off you go, and they have no idea. And I've been successful because of just like the rigor of it, like approaching it, like not run and gun, but sort of having metrics and things like that. But then really having to develop the skill set for it. It's true. And it, uh, you know, there's a lot of salespeople in, in our society, you know, and it's, I think um, it's not fair. The stereotype isn't fair. And maybe that was part of your decision process way back then because it was almost like the salespeople are the dregs of the earth, you know, the people that couldn't get a real job, right? But if you look at the statistics, there's some of the highest paid people in our economy. Um, And there's also, you know, you get paid for how hard you work. You don't just get a 5% cost of living increase and give yourself a raise every day by working hard at it and improving your craft. Yeah. I work more now, I think, as a than I did as an engineer, but I feel like I've got more influence and more control over that. Whereas I think back to those 11 p.m. Thursday nights trying to hammer out this code and it's not working and I'm just spent. Whereas now, yeah, I'm still putting in those hours. and But it's like I get to go meet people and talk to people and just I, I get paid to listen, which is great. Right. I love it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I do too. I love it. I still try to get back to the the best meeting I ever had. I was selling professional development stuff and it was um, with the CLO, the chief learning officer at Children's Hospital in Dallas. And I listened to him for 50 minutes and I whiteboarded a lot of what he said and I talked for like five minutes and then that was it. So I'm always tri- that was Nirvana for me. Yeah, that's that perfect. Was pro level for the me. The perfect call. But I didn't say anything, which was great. Yes, <laughs> I love it. It's really great. So, uh, do you still ski a lot? Did you get? Yes. No. We. Uh, my wife is also a passionate skier. It's kind of a non-starter if, if she wasn't. But um, we get out between 35 and 45 days a year. So, wow. Yeah. What's your favorite place? Um, you know, like I said, my favorite kind of skiing to these days is steep terrain skiing. So, um, we ski a basin a lot Yeah. and we ski, we ski Breckenridge when the hiking is open, uh, cause we like that terrain up there. And, um, we ski Vail a lot. You know, my, my mom lived in Vail and when she passed, we kept her place for eight years and our kids grew up, you know, ski club Vail and stuff like that. So, I probably skied there a thousand days, you know, I know it like the back of my hand and, um, I really enjoy it. It's big and fun. Um, it's kind of crazy though. You know, it's got its own kind of vibe to it. There's some really great side country out of Vale, but mm. they most, most people call them the East Vale shoots. Um, but we, we do a lot of skiing in East Vale. Um, you can ski right to the bus stop and then go back into town. And so that kind of thing, we do some touring, some too. So, um, just love being outside in the winter and, and skiing. It's a, it's one of the best feelings in the world. You know, if you think about it, there aren't very many places in human behavior where people hoot and holler while they're doing something. And if you go skiing on a powder day, it's all you hear. People are so (laughs) elated. There's so much joy that they actually scream out and enjoy. And that that's not really that prevalent any other place. It's that fun. 
That's yeah. I've never thought of it that way. It's right? So Am I right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Like, where else are people hooting and hollering? Unless you're at a sports event or something, but that's not you. You're just cheering someone else having fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never thought of it that way. I, I, I love one of my favorite movies is um, Riding Giants. It's about big wave surfing. I love that movie. Yeah. Like I have never surfed, but if I think I, if I did, I think I would just banish because I, like I watched those guys in the fifties in Hawaii. What else do you need? Right. Go fishing, go surfing and skiing's the closest that, you know. It's yeah. Just I think it's a different medium. You know, that ocean's so dynamic and, um, you know, that I guess in, in relative terms, skiing's kind of static. Yeah. You know, it's not moving, you know, unless you're in an avalanche, which it's, <laughs> you're not hooting and hollering then. Game over. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I, it's, uh, it's very similar to that. I, there, you know, there's a few – people get addicted to golf, and I think people get addicted to skiing. I think it, it, it becomes part of who you are. And, um, you know, where else can you stand outside on two planks and go 50 miles an hour down a hill – you know, with the wind in your face, like you're outside doing that. It's great. I love it. It makes winter go by so much faster. It does. And, you know, we're, you know, it's sunny here. And, you know, anybody that's listening, like in the Midwest, like where my dad lives, like Ohio, like, dude, it is gray out there. So I can take the cold. I can't take the gray. No, the gray is not good. It's yeah. If it's gray, it should be snowing. Um, yeah. Talking about the golf, I've, I hadn't thought about that. Like, I think... I like going to the driving range and it's a different kind of athleticism and skiing, I think satisfies that for me too. Cause I, I ride a lot in the summer, mm-hmm. which is kind of brute force, but there is a little bit of a technique to it in skiing. I'm finding the more I ski and the more I dig into it, there's that subtle biomechanical feedback, like stroking a seven iron, right? It's like, Oh, I made this turn because I was weighted correctly and I got the edge going and I was like, Oh, then when I feel it, it's like, Oh, then it's, that's great. Isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it's great. And there's an old saying out there, you know, anyone can carve one ski, but when you carve them both, that's really fun. (laughs) So it's something to think about when you're out there skiing, try to carve them both. Yeah. It's, it's it's the best. Yeah. I see those, those videos of somebody on corduroy and they're, (laughs) they're tilting over and it's like, Touching their elbow, right? Like a water skier. <laughs> My buddy Rich, he grew up in uh, Glenwood, and he was a racer for Glenwood. And you talked about Arapaho Basin. I remember going up um, the lift, and um, was it Pavlicini? Is that Correct. Sector? And he wore this yellow North Face one-piece with a blue helmet, which I still think he wears. And he I was like, super g turns man he's going like balls out and it's like and just he would throw that arm like he's crossing like that it's just again like you know watching moguls or watching that it's like so cool to see man it's great i'm sure he's having fun oh yeah yeah he rides bikes the same way his favorite line is actually in the gutter and i've tried to follow him one time and i both on skis and on the bikes and i can't do it like he sees it that's it he sees it differently than i do yeah, it's a fall, you know, it's a fall line sport. So, yeah, you you do have to read lines for sure. Yeah. Yeah, he would work through the peloton on the bike and just like and I remember one day like I'm going to be on his wheel and it just and he was gone. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't even know what happened. I couldn't even process it. <laughs> it 
that's great i love it i love it oh yeah well i mean what else uh, i mean you definitely have this philanthropic mindset and helping others like um was that part of like growing up did your mom have that or where did that come from i don't know that's a great question i i don't know i don't even know when i learned that 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 was something i wanted to do i mean maybe that's why i gravitated towards sales too because it really is helping people make decisions mm-hmm. um but i you know um I think I just maybe just from 30,000 feet kind of saw a few people in my life who um, were all about the dollars. And, you know, greed's like a fat pig with a small mouth. You know, you could never get enough, right? That you never get enough. And, um, I, and, and this sounds kind of morbid, I think, sometimes, but I, I kind of decided, and maybe it was after my mom passed away um, because she lived in Vail and you know, her funeral was so big, they had to have it at the Ford Amphitheater um, because she knew so many people. And uh, maybe from that day on, I was like, you know what, I'm going to try to see how big I can get my funeral, not how big I can make my bank account. Because uh, some of the people I know who have worked really hard in in, uh, making their bank account big, you know, they can probably have their funeral in their kitchen and everyone's big kitchen. Don't get me wrong, but, um, (laughs) everyone's just sitting around fighting about who gets the money, not the loss of the person. So for me, it's more been about the journey and the people I encounter and, and, um, how I can affect them or how I make them feel, you know, and it's obviously not always perfect. You know, I, um, probably piss people off sometimes too, but, um, I, I really am just trying to make good connections and, and help people out. And, and I get the most joy out of that. Um, and it's funny when you do that, you know, the, the monetary thing comes in enough, you know, it's enough. And how much do you really need? Really? I mean, it'd be fun to have a jet, but I don't really need one. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you think about that. And once you have your basic needs met and everything else is, kind of overhead right yeah yeah you know i i want to earn a good living because you know i like heli skiing and it's expensive (laughs) (laughs) so i want i know you know i want to be able to do things like that um but again it's not a ego thing or anything like that it's just for my own pleasure and you know again helping others if i can giving back to people less fortunate i i love the how big you're going to make your funeral like that. I could see that being your bestseller. Like that's just an amazing phrase that crosses so many like philosophical and, you know, moral and ethical, like it encompasses all those things. And it's just an amazing phrase. Like when you said that, I was like stunned, but I knew exactly what you meant by that. Yeah. It's like no one goes to a funeral and gets up and starts talking crap about you, you know, <laughs> They might roast you a little, right, just to get <laughs> to create levity. But um, I think that you know they come there because they they're gonna miss you, you know, and they, yeah, and that you made some kind of impact on their life that's meaningful. So um, I just kind of been working towards that. It's it's been it's I enjoy it. Um, how old are you when your mom passed? Uh, let's see, forty. Okay. I lost my mom when I was about 22. I okay. just asked the question. Yeah, it's a big context. difference. Yeah. yeah. 
you were in a different point of your life for sure. But um, that's still young, isn't it? Oh yeah, she was sixty-five, and yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was an accident. You know, she fell at her place up in Vail and hit her head, and um, the condo complex, townhome complex where she lived, only a few people lived there full time. Um, and the rest are all second vacation homes or, you know, places that people rented or whatever. And, you know, it was just kind of sad that no one found her in time. You know, I think if someone would have been around and they saw it, that she would have been fine. But um, she had a head injury. And, uh, you know, it's 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 funny because um, when something like that happens, it's it's weird to think that the life just goes on. You know, everyone gets up the next day and goes to work and you kind of want the world to stop and say, wait a minute. This right. person just passed away. We should all acknowledge, but it doesn't happen that way. But also, you know that you know she had potatoes cooking in her. You know she hadn't made her bed, and there was potatoes cooking on her stove, and um, all those little things that you don't think about. You know, you might not ever come back in your door. Um, yeah. Every time you leave, you never know. And uh, you know, life's life's precious, and it can be fleeting. Very. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I asked that question because um, I've been, and it wasn't like a birthday thing or an age thing, um, you know, being affected by the death of a intimate family member so young. I remember being very hedonistic and fatalistic at 22. Like, I think some people, you feel invincible. And at that point, I remember for probably a good couple months, I was like, you know what, life is short, it doesn't matter. And I think I was going, I was trying to maybe accelerate that. Like I wasn't suicidal, but I was partying way too much. And I was like, screw it, it doesn't matter anyway, you know? And then coming back to it the past couple of years, like seeing that, you know, life is very, very fragile. Things like, you know, 9-11 or even like a car accident, right? Correct. Like all that. Um, <clears throat> I've started thinking more about mortality and, you know, your phrase about how big you're going to make your funeral, you didn't say it with a sense of um, um, like fatalism or I know a lot of people don't even like talking about that. They get superstitious or like, oh, don't even don't even joke about that. Right. right? And so I was just kind of curious where that philosophy came from, because I have read some books on death and I've got a. Um, I did look up the death calculator on online where it's like the number of days. It's like some just random, um, uh, life. What are they? What's the life insurance, not amortization, the, uh, uh the underwriters or yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so you punch in your age and your weight and if you smoke. And so like this morning I've got 11,799 days. Wow. That's interesting to think about. Yeah. So yeah. I think it put me at like, 80 or 76 or something like that. But then again, you know what? I could, you know, have a clot break loose going down the stairs or get smoked in a car wreck. But yeah, you just set it with a very um, calm um, manner about thinking about the end of your life. And I just kind of wondered where that came from. I th I, again, I think it was just uh, looking at how my mom lived her life and, and all her friends, you know, and her network and everything. Yeah. And, it just made, you know, at the time I was always trying to, you know, running towards the dollar, you know, and not yeah. in a greedy, like <clears throat> jerky way or anything, but that seemed to be the most important thing. And I, I think, you know, especially for um, somebody my age, you know, when I graduated from high school, 
the you know a male's purpose was pretty defined you know like raise money and women raise kids you know and i i took that seriously you know we we had kids my mom or my wife stayed home for 13 years and um you know uh i i felt like it was my responsibility to provide for my family in in such a way and all these things and you know once she passed away and i saw you know she, she was a single mom and she really worked in the service industry as a bartender most of her life. Um, but, uh, it was so rich and full because of all the people around her and all her friends. And it just made me kind of, it it was an epiphany really. It's like, why am I getting up at four in the morning and going to work really early and not even having breakfast with my kids? And when I came home, they were already asleep and, you know, wait a minute, Matt's talking now. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? So I think that um, it just helped me. And it's unfortunate that something like that has to be the catalyst to a shift in philosophy. But um, it, you know, it really just changed me that way. I just felt different about what my purpose was and, and, uh, and how to approach life and relationships and, and things of that nature. I had a similar realization. It wasn't quite as fine a point as that was, but um, it was, I quit my engineering job when my kids were five and two and I stayed home with them for Mm. three years because it must've been great. It was, I saw my daughter's first steps and I walked my son to uh, kindergarten and first grade every day. And um, yeah, I didn't know why I didn't like what I was doing, but I, dropped my daughter off at this great daycare and I went to work and I was like, I just felt like something was missing. And that's really colored our relationship. Even to this day, they're 22 and 17. And so it's made a huge difference in still to this day, the way that we communicate and just like those were some of the best years of my life. That's great. That's great. Yeah. It's awesome. And, uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. Um we'll edit that one out. <laughs> um but I've tried to impart to them that yeah, money is great and I've been like on the downside of that too where I've been even as a, an adult with two kids like broke and mm-hmm. money seems very very important but at some point like it wouldn't have saved my mom dying from cancer and you know it may have affected your mom, but there's certain things that money's just not going to do it. And I've tried to tell them that like it's friends and family. That's the most important thing. It really is. It really is. And you know, it's kind of, it's a, there's a lyric in the Kansas song, dust in the wind, you know, all your money won't another minute buy. Right. Right. So if you think of someone like Steve jobs, who really had all the money in the world, but it doesn't matter if, yeah. if you get sick. Yeah, right. It, the universe doesn't care the, the, no. how much money you have. It, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's interesting to think of it that way. But, uh, you know, hopefully we'll live to 80 or 100. And <laughs> I, I just hope I live till I die, if that makes sense. You know, totally. I, I don't really want to be in a nursing home or, you know, dementia scares me. You know, I have so many pe- that affects so many families and. I just see how they go through um, those times when their loved one doesn't even recognize them and I, and they're angry or whatever. And, you know, I hope I never um, 
you know, I hope a bus runs me over before that happens. Like <laughs> the proverbial hit by a bus, right? <clears throat> the one that um, uh, scares me legitimately is like ALS. I had a friend that got me into cycling and he passed, um, man, was it two years ago already from that? And I think that would, you know, any any terminal disease is going to suck, whether it's dementia or Alzheimer's or ALS. But to have all your faculties and then just be in a a prison of immobility would mm. just be like, yeah, that's one that just seeing that. So he was a he was a friend, not a super close friend, but hearing that and then seeing him around was like, holy shit! Like that would be, I think maybe one of the worst. For sure. For sure. Yeah, it's not good. But yeah, live yeah. till you die. Like, I, I love that. That's yeah. that's the, the subtitle or the sub, not subtitle. What do they call it? The byline of your, you know, make your funeral. As <laughs> right, crazy. right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we might have a book idea. Yeah. <laughs> How big can you get your funeral and live till you die? I'm writing that one down too. <laughs> well, I'm so happy this finally happened. And I just want to tell you that like the, the joy for me in doing these conversations is getting to something just like what you've said and um, knowing you somewhat casually, but just bonding over that. I just want to thank you for that. Like it's always when that happens, it's like I love doing this and it just fires me up. So it's been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it too, Matt. And thanks for your persistence. I know it's been hard for us to get together, uh, but we, here we are. Yeah. yeah. So good job. I yeah. really enjoyed it. Thank you, Rolf. That's uh, amazing. I'll post all the links to Udemy and to Tectonic and everything else. And it's just been wonderful. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks. Thank you. If you like this show, I have two requests. One is to share it with someone and make sure that they know what a podcast is and how to get it. Either show them iTunes or Spotify. And the second request is let me know if there's somebody that you would like to be interviewed in your personal circle. Uh, people ask me all the time where I find these guests and they're friends on Facebook, friends on LinkedIn. Uh, I see uh, news articles and I simply reach out and talk to them and ask them if they'd want to tell their story. So uh, this podcast was founded on the premise that you don't have to be rich and famous to tell a compelling story. And if there's somebody in your world that uh, you think would be a great interview, I guarantee you they would be. And just shoot me a note at podcast at the warmfront.com and let's hook it up. Thanks.